The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Our firstborn son is our second child. And so I remember when he was born, grandparents, aunts, uncles were all very eager to help out in our home, which was a wonderful thing. But I remember my son was eight days old when I first held him because <laughs> so many people were around, and, and, which was a great thing. But I, so it was eight days in and I'm holding him and we're at a park and it's finally just me and him. This is the first son that the Lord's given to me. And so I'm praying about all these things that I pray for him. Lord, I pray this will be true with him. I pray this will be true with him. Now, at that time, I was preaching through the Gospel of John and God clarified in my head the best way to pray for my son. And as I was walking up the hill of the park, I finally prayed, Lord, I pray that my son will truly come to know you. Not just about you, but to truly know you. Now that's because there is a vast, in fact, eternal difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. Jesus soberingly warns of this in Matthew 7 when he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He continues in verse 22, On that day, many, not a few, many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? Now notice that they're going to refer to what they did as the grounds for why they should be accepted into heaven. Did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? In other words, their argument is, I belong because look at what I've done. But Jesus that day will say to them in verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. So you did things. You even claimed my name. But we didn't know each other. John chapter 17, verse 3, says it this way. This is what I prayed for Judah when I was carrying him that day. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now again, you might think, well, that's obvious. I mean, everybody knows God. What's the difference? But if you've been working through the Gospel of John, in chapter 5, to the Pharisees, Jesus said this. You study the scriptures, the scriptures, because you think in them you have eternal life. Yet these very scriptures testify about me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. Did you catch what Jesus is saying? Some people even know the Bible and don't know Jesus. See, there's a vast and eternal difference between merely just knowing about God or even knowing portions of the Word of God, or knowing Christian principles, or religious traditions, and actually knowing Jesus relationally as your Lord and Savior. Of the passages we're going to get to in Philippians, this is one of the ones I am most passionate about. In fact, it's the reason that I'm still in the United States of America. In college, I thought that I would be going to Africa as a missionary, which is a very good thing. I was willing, Lord, if you want me to go, to go to Africa. My wife also had the same burden. So as we got to know each other, we were thinking, we'll go to seminary, we'll go to Africa. 
And then in the time of my study, as I looked and studied our American cities, I became more and more convinced that many Americans know about God, but don't know God through Jesus. Many, many Americans know about the Word of God, know the things of God. They know the right terminology, but they don't know the Lord. This is a truth that I think I could demonstrate to you from a number of sources. But here's a recent one. It's actually from September 8th of this year, so just a couple weeks ago. LifeWay, the Southern Baptist Research Group, partners with Ligonier for what they call the State of Theology, which someone in our church shared with me. Here's just a couple snippets from it. They interviewed first just Americans generally. And 65% of the Americans they interviewed said, well, people sin a little, but we're good by nature. Meaning two-thirds of Americans believe we're all good people. Now, later in the survey, they narrowed down the survey to those who identify as Christians. Now, those who identify as Christians, 42% of those who say I'm a Christian believes that God accepts the worship of Christianity just as much as he does Judaism and Islam. These are people who say I'm a believer, who believe any sincere way will get you to heaven. Meaning that what people generally think in America and what those who claim to be Christians think in America is that basically good people, if you mean well, must make it to the kingdom of heaven. Even though did we not just read from Matthew 7, Jesus saying many will say, did we not? And I will say, I never knew you. So the American cities that we live in are not as Christian as they may appear. Therefore, today's text, Philippians 3, it is not hyperbolic for me to say, is the most significant truth any of us could ever hear. How do I truly know God? Not just about God. How do I truly and eternally know God? And what is the difference between that and the veneer of moralistic religiosity that is so common in our country? So the title of today's sermon is The Surpassing Worth of Truly Knowing Jesus. Would you look with me now in Philippians 3? Right now, you might be thinking, "Ah, I already know this stuff. Look in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, even those of you who are really brothers, rejoice in the Lord, because to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Notice, even real brothers and sisters need to be reminded it's safe for us. But now, if you're following on the notes, number one, the difference between mere moralism and true Christianity, and that's what we'll find right away. Verse 2 tells us, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I could give you lots of contemporary historical background as to who these people are and what they do, but let's pretend it's Tuesday morning and you're reading Philippians 3 and you don't have a stack of commentaries next to your bed. (laughs) How do you figure out what verse 2 means? You read on to verse 3. So who are these people in verse 2? Well, apparently they're the opposite of whatever verse 3 is. Look at verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, do you know who the people in verse 2 are? They're people that put confidence in their flesh. People who don't worship by the 
Holy Spirit, people who do not glory in Christ Jesus. So these first century terms like dogs, which is a derogatory term to use, evil workers or mutilators of the flesh refer to people who put confidence in their own merit. Now in the first century, these were known as Judaizers, those who believed that through religious practices, they could earn standing with God. But today, I think it's best to know them as moralist. That's the comparison to what we still have in our country today. Because is it not true that we still have many people who believe that by their moral performance and their proper upbringing, God will accept them? This study has been done repeatedly, and it's been condensed by the very good research of Christian Smith, and it's been called MTD. You can Google it later so you remember it. But MTD stands for Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Now here's what the study did. It took hundreds, thousands of our Christian youth, especially in the South, and it interviewed them on the basis of number of questions, what they believe. In other words, it was a way to figure out what those growing up in our churches are actually catching, what's actually being communicated to them. And they found there were five things that our young people have in common by the time they're adults. Here are the five things they believe. Number one, they believe there's a God who created the world. So far, so good. Number two, they believe God wants us just to be good. We're slipping now. (laughs) Number three, they believe the main goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. We're starting to plummet, aren't we? Number four, we believe God doesn't need to be particularly involved in our lives unless we really need something. Uh, We're in trouble now. The plane's on fire. Now number five, they believe good people go to heaven when we die. The plane has crashed and exploded. This is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, of course we're not against morals per se, better morals than immorals, but moralistic means because I'm good, I will gain entrance by my goodness with God. Therapeutic means God essentially exists to be an assist for me when I'm in trouble. He's like an in case of emergency, break glass genie sort of role. And deism means he was there when we created the world, but he's not really involved now. Moralistic therapeutic deism. In 2005, Albert Moeller wrote wrote on this in the Christian Post. He wrote this, We can now say here with some confidence that a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually really only Christianity in the false sense of the word. It is not seriously connected to historical Christianity, and it is morphed into a misbegotten step-cousin, moralistic therapeutic deism. Muller concludes, we now face the daunting challenge of evangelizing a nation that largely considers itself Christian, overwhelmingly believes in some deity, considers itself fervently religious, but has no connection to historic Christianity. This is a great service for the Church of Jesus Christ in identifying moralistic therapeutic deism as the actual dominant religion in America. Now, in my conversations with people out and about, or in parks, or even in churches, it confirms Moeller's research. I'll talk to someone, especially when they find out I'm a pastor, (laughs) and then they say, well, I believe in God. And I say, so does Satan, right? (laughs) And they say, but I'm a good person. 
And I say, so is Nicodemus. And Jesus told him, you must be born again. And they tell me, but don't all good people make it to heaven? And I say, yes, all good people make it to heaven. But Jesus said, there's none good but God. And so what I find in talking with people is the research is correct. Most Americans aren't actually Christians. They're just moralistic, therapeutic deists. And that's why I didn't go to Africa. And I'm glad people go. (laughs) But I believe firmly that we have a great mission field here. And it is harder to witness to a post-Christian culture than a pre-Christian one. Because everyone you talk to thinks they already know. And they don't know. They know about God. They don't know God. Now, if you know American history, you know that this is a problem that we've been set up for since our founding fathers. Thomas Kidd, who is a distinguished research professor of history at Baylor University, wrote a book on Benjamin Franklin. In it, and referring to all the founding fathers, he wrote this. It would never occur to the founding fathers to question the idea that Christian morality is essential to the life of the republic. And so when people talk about Jefferson and Franklin, I would be the first to tell you, Kid writes, that they were Christians. I wish they were Christians. I want everyone to be a Christian. But when you see them explicitly deny the divinity of Christ, when Jefferson produced his own Jefferson Bible, do you know what that is? Jefferson got out a pair of scissors and cut out all the parts of the Bible he didn't like. Do you know where the the Gospels end in Thomas Jefferson's Bible? With the grave being sealed up and Jesus never rises from the dead. You see, the, the founding fathers believed in moralism. They didn't, many of them, not all, thankfully, but many did not know Christ. And so Kidd concludes... If we're being honest with biblical truth, we have to say the kind of religion of Franklin and Jefferson is not Christianity. Now, Franklin, if you know his life well, he actually wrote on morals. He wrote a, a, this is a portion of his autobiography. The title is A Program for Moral Improvement, and it has 13 virtues. He produced it in 1791. His 13th of the 13 Morals is humility, and he lists Jesus as one of many other good examples. But George Whitfield, the renowned evangelist, witnessed to Franklin his entire life until George Whitfield died. And in Franklin's personal letters to and from George Whitfield, he appreciated Whitfield's passion, but as far as we know, never accepted his need for a savior personally. You see, many Americans since our foundation have confused morality with knowing Jesus Christ. And they're not the same. In fact, they're eternally different. So verse 2, those Judaizers, we still have them today, just the same actors in a different play. Today, they're the moralistic, therapeutic deist. But there's nothing more important for you than knowing the difference between them. So look now in verse 3 to see true Christianity. True Christianity are those who are really the circumcision. Paul is using a play on words here against those Jews who think by their religious performance they can be right with God. But notice again the three qualities. First, to be a true Christian, you must worship by the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God is not at work in you, you are not a Christian. You're not born again. 
Second, you glory in Christ Jesus. Glory doxa could often be translated boast or celebrate. Meaning your greatest boast and confidence is in what Christ Jesus has done. Which is why the next phrase says you put no confidence in the flesh. Have you noticed how much confidence our culture tells us to put in ourselves? Phrases like believe in yourself. Be a good person. Be true to yourself. Try harder. You'll get it right the next time. Repeatedly we're told, just put confidence in your flesh and you'll succeed. Historically, Christian creeds begin with a statement like this. We believe that we are inherently sinful and sinners by nature and choice. We believe that Christ is our Savior. Now, have you noticed some of the yard signs out and about? They begin, we believe. But there's no acknowledgement that I'm a great sinner. Instead, there's acknowledgements of moral commitments by which we will be seen as good people. You see, that's exactly what it is to put confidence in the flesh. And it occurs on all sides of the political and cultural spectrum. People are told that if you just rely on you, you'll make it. Now, Paul used to do that too. And if anyone could make it by relying on their own performance and pedigree, it's Paul. And so this is now verses 4 through 6, the false assurance of self-reliance. Look in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, Paul's playing, you want to play that game with me? (laughs) You want to play the game of who's good enough to get in? Let's play it. I have a better hand than you do. That's what he's about to explain. My dad, growing up, loved to collect baseball cards. In his basement are boxes and boxes and boxes of baseball cards. There's Michael Jordan rookies hidden in there. There's Barry Sanders rookies. I think he might have Mickey Mantle. If he could just dig them out, we could make a lot of money. (laughs) All those baseball cards he collected, I loved collecting them with him when I was a kid. On the front, you have a picture, but on the back, what do you have? The stats. This is what Paul's going to give in verses 5 through 6. Here's the stats that he had. If you could make it on your own steam, oh boy, he could have made it. Look in verse 5. This is pedigree. Verse 5, this is your pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day. Good luck beating that one. This is Old Testament stuff. Of the people of Israel. I mean, most of us are Gentiles. We can't even claim that one. Not just of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, the special one, the one Joseph loved, his younger brother, that really important one. A Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I didn't pick up the language on Rosetta Stone or something. This is who I am. This is what I've known. As to the law of Pharisee, I don't know how much you know about Pharisees, but it it wasn't like something you could join. It was something, when, when you're a Jew and you're five years old, you go to a special school. If you're really smart at seven years old, it kind of turns you down the floor chart a different way. They do the same thing at nine and then at 11. And by 13, if you're like incredibly elite, the Pharisees come and find you and they take you to learn under a master, a rabbi. You don't just get this. You get selected for this. So Paul's point is if you could make it on the basis of what you've done, I'm there. Now think of how many Christians... uh, How many people in America confuse Christianity with this? Well, I was raised in the right home. I have the right background. 
I grew up going to church. So many times I'll ask people, how did you come to know Christ? And they answer, well, I, I grew up in church. I've always been a Christian. No, you've always been a sinner. <laughs> so verse 5, he's saying, here's my background. If I could make it by pedigree, then I'm in. Now verse 6, by performance. As to zeal, you want to talk about zeal? You think you're religious? I used to persecute the church. You think you're committed? I used to literally kill the opposition. So you're not as committed as he is. As to righteousness under the law, meaning the traditions the Pharisees made up, blameless. Never broke the Sabbath. Always did what I was supposed to do. So if it comes down to pedigree and performance, he's in. Many Americans think the same. Surely God will accept me because I've had the right pedigree and I've had the right performance. I'm from the right kind of home. I've done the right kind of things. And when God looks down and separates the wheat from the chaff, I'm with the good guys. But see, what Paul learned is what we all have to learn. That whatever pedigree or performance you have, not only is it nothing, it's actually a negative. It's actually garbage. Look now in verse 7. Whatever gain I thought I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And now in the verses that come, picture an accountant who's putting a profit and loss column. And spoiler alert, all the pedigree and performance is loss. None of it's credit. None of it. Now verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss. Everything. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Remember where we started in the sermon? A vast and eternal difference between just knowing about God and actually knowing God. He knew about everything. But now he finally knows Christ. And the difference is so significant that all the stuff that used to define him his merit based on pedigree and performance is now loss. He goes even further. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You see, everything but Jesus is actually loss because everything but Jesus is actually sin. It's actually a negative. Even our social goods are done in self-centered, non-God-glorifying sinfulness. Now here's the thing that Paul had to realize. I can either know about the things of God and try to approach Him on my own performance and pedigree, or I can actually know Jesus Christ and approach Him on His basis. That's the eternal difference. He says it as strongly as you can. I count these things as rubbish. Old translations sometimes will say dung. But probably the idea is it's garbage that you throw out that's perused by dogs. It's something of such low value. Nobody wants to touch it. That's how he describes his life. Now think of how many people sit in a service like today and here's the reason they won't be saved. Because they've built up a reputation for 50 years, 60 years. And they'd have to come forward and admit that all of that is rubbish. So would you rather protect your reputation today and burn in hell for eternity? Or come forward and say, whatever I was in my own merit, it's garbage compared to actually knowing Jesus Christ. 
It saddens me to think how many people have so built a moral reputation in their church and their community that they'd rather protect that than their eternal soul. But Paul came to realize all of that compared to actually knowing Jesus is garbage and I'm glad to let it go. In fact, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things so that I can, don't miss this, gain Christ. Let me press it to you this way this morning. In order for you to gain Christ, you must relinquish your self-confidence. In order for you to gain Christ, you have to let go of your pedigree and performance. In order for you to actually have Jesus, you have to forget about what you think you've accomplished. It requires humility. I love the song, In Christ Alone. Do you know it? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my strength. No one else and nothing else. And this is what this verse is saying. But it gets even more beautiful. Look now in verse 9. And be found in Him. Not in me alone. In Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith is a source of hope. Faith is a source of reliance. Faith is a ground of trust. But faith is only as good as its object. If you believe with all your heart in the wrong thing, you're just sincerely wrong. But if you put your heart in the one object that is a solid rock, then even if your faith is weak, you still stand. Because it's the object that has the strength. See, the object that gives us strength is Christ, not our own righteousness. Think how commonly we flip this. Even in our culture, when we made those cool wristbands, we put on WWJD. What would Jesus do? And what we might be accidentally communicating is if you just do like Jesus, then you'll make it. I've always wanted to take one of the W's out. So just say, what Jesus did for me. That's actually my confidence. Not what I could ever do so that he would accept me, but what he did that gives me righteousness. Notice it's not a righteousness of our own that could come through the law or come through performance. It's a righteousness that's received through faith in his faithfulness, not in ours. If we begin with what he did, then we have the power to grow in him, not in ourselves. That's why verse 10 says that I may know him. Notice relationship comes before obedience. And it always has. The Ten Commandments don't begin with, if you keep these ten, I'll get you out of Egypt. No, they begin with, I rescued you out of Egypt. So here are ten guidelines. Relationship always comes before obedience. So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. These three phrases all refer to the power of union with Christ. The first one, 
Verse 10, the power of his resurrection. Romans 6 talks about the power of the resurrection to help us to deny the power of sin. This is the reality of being united to Christ in faith. The next phrase, sharing in his sufferings. This reminds us of Jesus' teaching about being willing to take up your cross. It means to die to self-centeredness. The next phrase goes on, becoming like him in his death. Living like Christ and putting the cross before us and the world behind us is the idea. This is why Gordon Fee writes, Christian life is cruciform in character. God's people, even as they live presently through the power of Christ's resurrection, are as their Lord forever marked by the cross. The heavenly line, one must never forget, is a slain lamb. Verse 11 has always struck me a little weird. After all this confidence, why does his word sound equivocating? Look in verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What happened, Paul? Do you no longer have confidence in God? No, it's not doubt, it's humility. And that phrase, if by any means possible, doesn't mean he's not sure if he's going to be with the Lord. He's just not sure if it's going to be rapture or death. That's all he means. He knows he's going to be with the Lord. He's just not sure if it's going to be at Christ's return or at the hands of the Roman executioner. So now look back in verse 9, because this is the key verse. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that could come through the law or performance but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Because righteousness strikes us weird in our American ears, let me pause on it a little bit. Righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. Righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors for you. Keller has helped me understand this a little better. Think about your life. In all of life, this is how America works. This is how life works. Your record is what opens doors for you. Let's say you're applying for a new job. What do they want you to produce? What do you send them first? Your resume. And what is your resume? It's your record of achievements. And you send them your resume. And what you're implicitly saying is, based on my record of achievements, please accept me and open the door for me. Imagine you're applying for an advanced degree. If you want an advanced degree, you have to pull out your academic records, literally your grades. And what you're saying to that master's program or doctoral program is, on the basis of my previous grades, on the basis of my previous achievements, please accept me. Your performance record, you hope, will open doors for you. In fact, as I understand it, we even do this now with with dating. I've never done online dating, but from what I understand, you can put out your performance record. Here's what I look like. Do you like that? I like long walks on the beach with my dog. I hope you do too. Please accept me, right? So here's my record. Will you accept me on the basis of my record? Now, because all of life works that way, we expect it to work that way with God. I'll have a connection with the divine by my spiritual or moral performance record. Surely God will look and say, look at how he's done this and how sincere he is here. and Look at how sacrificial and self-denying he's been here. Surely, therefore, my record will open doors with me. Here's actually what the Bible says our record is before God. You pull out your resume, and at the top, it just in one word says, fail. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we don't like that, and so we try and hide that sheet and just earn it anyway. 
But here's the glory of the gospel. That sheet that really does accurately define us as a failure who cannot be accepted. God sent his son and he came down and he lived perfectly and he died on the cross sacrificially in our place and he rose victoriously so that now God can erase the top part and write forgiven, accepted, forever loved. You see, the gospel sounds so strange because in all of life we're accepted by our pedigree and our performance. But see, the good news of the gospel is though we can never be accepted through Christ, we can. Jesus has come to do what we never could do and what we failed to do. So look now in verse 9. Be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Our man-made moralistic therapeutic deism in the United States teaches us that if you just are good enough, then you'll belong. But the Bible teaches us you're not good enough. But Christ is. And in Him alone you can belong forever. Before God, our performance record is hopelessly stained. So the proverbial question, if you were to die today, how would you get into heaven? If you were to answer that question... Do not appeal to your Sunday school attendance, though that's a good thing. (laughs) Don't appeal to the record of obedience you have, though of course that's not wrong inherently. Point across the throne room of heaven to the Lamb of God who still has marks in His hands and one in His side. And say, on my ground, I have no reason to be let in here. But He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. And my hope is in Him. That opens the door. And nothing else can. Now I want you to think of how this affects daily life if you are truly a Christian. Perhaps as a true Christian, you're behaving like someone who still relates to God on the basis of your performance. Let me give you some probing questions. When you sin, do you like try and work it off before you approach God again? You feel like you're a failure, you feel like you're really messed up, so you're going to really try and get it right over the next couple of months. And then you'll open the Bible and pray again, because then God will listen to you. You see, you're relating to Him as if it's your performance. When you really mess up, do you just kind of run and hide and say, uh, I'm, I, I'm not worthy? You've never been worthy. Our approach is through the blood of Christ, and that defines the entirety of the relationship, not just the entrance. We are found in a righteousness not of our own. So this morning, I ask you, on what grounds do you think you're good? One of my favorite interchanges in the Bible is when the rich young ruler goes to Jesus in Mark 10. And the rich young ruler says to Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Now, Jesus says, have you kept the commandments? And the rich young ruler says, yes. Have you ever thought about how crazy that is? Jesus just got done saying, there's no one good but God. And now the rich young ruler says, but I am too, right? (laughs) Jesus says, go sell your stuff. And he won't. Because what Jesus is pointing out is, you think you're good, but you're not. 
Now, here's how the passage ends, and I think we miss this all the time. The disciples are freaking out. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says how hard it is for someone to enter the kingdom of God. It's like a camel through the eye of the needle. And many of us read that and we think, oh, Jesus must just be referring to rich people. And then we assume that we're not one of them. (laughs) But Jesus goes on to say, no, actually with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you see what he's saying in context? With man, it's impossible because we're not good. And yet moralistic therapeutic deism teaches us that we think we are. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it several centuries ago in London, preaching two similar problems. He said to his congregation, morality may keep you out of jail, but only Jesus can keep you out of hell. You see, the Christian is the only person who can say that they know God and will spend eternity in heaven without being self-righteous. Everybody else who believes that their life is somehow going to earn some eternal goodness believes that they earned it. Only Christians believe. That is, Christ who has earned it in our behalf and we're found in a righteousness that is not our own, but those that comes to us through faith. So I need to ask you this morning very directly, do you know Jesus? Or do you just know about Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Are you willing to share in His sufferings, be conformed in His death, confidence in His resurrection, or do you just know about the things of God? In order for you to truly know Jesus, you must relinquish confidence in your own flesh. Friend, your pedigree and your performance will not grant you a relationship with God, but the performance of Jesus will. So put your faith in Him. And Christian, remind yourself that your acceptance never has been about you, but it's been about His Son. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, we live in a country that knows a lot of Christian terms. And yet most of those people, like Jesus warned, will one day say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Every day we are tempted to think that we can stand before you based on our achievement. In fact, we look at other people and we think, well, I'm not as bad as them. I'm doing better than them. But actually, the comparison standard is Jesus Christ. It is God's perfection. Altogether lovely. Altogether perfect. So Lord, what a shame it would be if we're thinking to ourselves this morning, well, but I'm from the right kind of home and I've done the right kind of things and surely if anyone's good, it's me. Help us like Paul to realize whatever performance I had, whatever background I had, it is garbage compared to truly knowing Jesus. Maybe someone who's listening at home or here today in person has had a respectable reputation for years, but has never repented and believed in Jesus alone. May today be the day that they come to faith in Christ truly and know Him as their Lord and Savior. But Lord, also in this community, many people this Sunday are walking around confident that they're good enough Believing that, hey, if there is a God, I've, I've surely done enough. 
when in reality, Lord, the cross shows us we never could and we haven't. But Jesus Christ has, and he offers salvation to be received through faith. So, Lord, may we proclaim the counterintuitive truth of the gospel. You can't be saved on your own record, but you can be saved through faith in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.